The history of competitive sports has long been one dominated by male athletes, and this is including the Olympics. It wasn't until the 1900 Paris Summer Games that gender-specific categories and events were created so that women could participate in these sports. And this is interesting. Olympic sports used to be considered a male-only activity. What if within colleges, which were also previously all-male, we separated men and women into different categories and classes and had them learn separately? Was gender really only assigned as a category to sports because it didn't start off involving both genders? Women were simply an addition? In this podcast, I'm going to be discussing the history of transgender people in sports and the policies surrounding this participation, as well as some of the experiences of transgender people in competitive sports. I'm going to be arguing that it is this history of transgender people in sports and these policies that show us that gender is really not a sufficient method for categorization or participation in competitive sports, and that alternative categories are needed, such as ones that are specific to the sport. Um, and it is eliminating these categories that would also allow us to be more accommodating of people who are gender non-binary, people who are transitioning genders, etc. Um, so it is the progression of this transgender involvement in competitive sports, especially more recently, that shows us the somewhat irrelevant nature of gender as a category within competitive sports. One of the core aspects within competitive sports is the idea of fair play, meaning that we want to get rid of any advantages that some athletes might have over others when they're competing in the same category or event. And it is pretty well known that men have an advantage over women when it comes to competitive sports. They often have a greater average height, they have a larger muscle mass and more power, and they also have a different set of hormones than women do. And it is also widely believed that um, these hormones, specifically testosterone, are what give a competitive advantage in um, sports. And so from that, we can see that transgender female athletes, because they often have these higher levels of testosterone, are believed to hold an, an athletic, athletic advantage. Um, so when we look at the debate over whether or not transgender people should be allowed to compete in competitive sports um, and how they're going to do this, it's really more of a debate over whether or not transgender women should be allowed to compete because it is those athletes who do often have a higher level of testosterone that um, could potentially get in the idea of this idea of fair play with the way sporting systems are set up right now, dividing men and women as the categories for competing. One of the biggest ways that different sporting organizations and events have chosen to categorize and allow transgender people to compete um, and the policies that have come out have involved um, the measurement of hormones, so specifically testosterone. Um, and it's important to note that there really isn't any sort of uniformity across different competitive sports or organizations or events in terms of hormone level requirements, surgery, etc. Um, but one way we can look at this progression is through the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC. So in 2004, the IOC came out with the policy that transgender people could compete in future Olympic Games um, if they had medically transitioned. Um, meaning that they had experienced um, cross-sex hormone treatment for two years, as well as having experienced gender-confirming surgery. So for transgender people who transitioned after puberty, they had to fulfill these requirements. And for those transgender people who had um, transitioned before puberty and had undergone gender-confirming surgery were um, able to compete in their chosen gender identity as well. Um, so while this policy was progressive in that it allowed transgender people to compete in the Olympics, um, there were some flaws to it. So 
Number one, it excluded transgender people who chose to not have gender-confirming surgery, whether this be for a medical reason, a personal reason. It also excluded transgender people who were currently in the process of transitioning, as they really didn't fall into any sort of category. Um, and finally, there really wasn't any sort of reasoning behind this two-year policy, meaning you had to have had cross-sex hormone treatment for two years. There wasn't really any research that backed up the need for two full years. So it wasn't until 2016, 200 days before the Rio Olympic Games, that the IOC came out with another policy. And this policy stated that transgender male athletes could compete in the male category without any sort of restrictions, whereas transgender female athletes could compete in the female category um, as long as they had declared their gender um, as female for um, at least four years, as well as having blood testosterone levels that were below 10 nanomoles per liter um, for 12 months before competing in the games. Um, and if transgender women didn't meet these requirements, they would be permitted to compete within the male category. Um, so while this policy was an improvement, because it moved away from the necessity of surgery in order to compete, which would be a very physical change to a body, to an athlete, before allowing it to, them to compete, um, it does still measure, measure blood levels um, of testosterone without a lot of reasoning behind the specifics. Um, and also the idea that transgender women could compete in the male category if they didn't meet these requirements really didn't help the situation of inclusivity in terms of transgender athletes per, um, participating in the Olympic Games. So it's from the progression of these IOC policies that we see that competitive sports often exclude transgender athletes, especially transgender women, despite all of the different policies that have been put in place. So let's look at a couple of examples of transgender athletes competing within competitive sports. So while the IOC has technically allowed transgender athletes to participate in the Olympics since 2004, it wasn't until this past year's 2021 Tokyo Olympics that athletes have done so openly. So Quinn, for example, Quinn is a midfielder for Canadians, the Canadian women's soccer team, and they became the first openly transgender athlete to compete within the Olympics. Laurel Hubbard is another example from this past year. She is a transgender woman competing in weightlifting for New Zealand. In fact, Hubbard actually competed in and won the international weightlifting title in 2017 in the over 90 kilogram division. And Hubbard's blood testing revealed that she did not in fact have higher testosterone levels than any of the other female weightlifters who were also competing in the Australian International. So looking outside of the Olympics, um, Renee Richards was a transgender woman tennis player um, from 1976. She was supposed to compete in the female category for tennis, but was asked to take a sex test and refused to do so. She was then barred from competing, and her case eventually went to the Supreme Court, um, which ruled that she would be allowed to compete in female categories. However, um, a future, in a future tournament, 25 women ended up withdrawing from their position in the competition because of a belief that Richard had an unfair advantage as a transgender woman. Um, Duti Chand is another example. Um, Chand is an intersex athlete. She is a sprinter from India, and she was criticized because of her higher testosterone levels after she won the 200-meter sprint and the 400-meter relay race at the 2014 Asian Junior Athletics Championships. Chand experienced blood tests, um, chromosome analyses, a gynecological exam, an MRI, all of which to find out her gender. Um, she was then 
not allowed to compete in female categories, and she was also told to take hormone-suppressing drugs or to have surgery as a way to lower her testosterone. Um, Shan ended up appealing to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, or the CAS, in 2015, um, and she asked the question of why she would need um, treatment if she wasn't sick, um, and she also argued that there was no evidence that testosterone would help her performance in any way. So the CAS ended up removing the IAAF's hyperandrogenism regulation um, and also gave them a time span of two years in order to find more evidence, um, medical evidence, scientific evidence, that testosterone was in fact something that would benefit athletes and give them an advantage. So Chan's example is particularly significant here because we see athletes who are being told to change their body chemistry or their um, certain aspects of their body in order to fit into these gendered categories that exist within competitive sports rather than changing the categories themselves to include all athletes. So when we look at these examples we see that testosterone measurement is the thing that's blocking a lot of transgender athletes from competing. But there really isn't that much research on whether or not testosterone is in fact the thing that's giving athletes an advantage. There was a study conducted in 2004 by Lewis Gorin and Matthew Heesbunk to look at whether transgender athletes do have any sort of advantage within competitive sports. They found that transgender male and female individuals most likely didn't have any sort of advantage after a year of cross-sex hormone treatment, with the exception that transgender women might have an advantage because of a larger muscle mass. But the reality is that higher testosterone might not necessarily mean a higher level of performance. The thing that's really important to look at is the way the body responds to testosterone, which is the idea of effective testosterone. So transgender women are often told that they shouldn't compete within female categories because it is, is assumed that they have a higher effective testosterone level as opposed to their cisgender female competitors. Um, but because we have no way of measuring effective testosterone levels, grouping athletes together with testosterone really isn't very effective. Um, in her article, Something's Gotta Give, Reconsidering the Justification for a Gender Divide in Sport, Andrea Bianchi talks about the skills thesis. And this is the idea that someone's success within sports should be based on their skill, rather than any sort of advantages that they have over their competitors. And this goes back to the idea of fair play, wanting the playing field to be level between competitors. And the skills thesis is what is used against trans women who want to compete within female categories. Um, it's the idea that they might have some sort of advantage. Um, in her article, Bianchi also argues that um, if higher effective testosterone levels for transgender women are undermining the skills thesis, then the very fact that there's genetic variation, that some people are taller, have a higher height, um, a greater wingspan, these things are also undermining this thesis because these people also have an advantage. So besides this idea that um, not enough research has gone into whether or not testosterone gives people an advantage within sports, um, this also forces the idea that there really is only one correct way to be transgender, that transgender women have to fit within these confines of specific testosterone levels. This is, these um, testosterone policies are also discriminatory against the decisions of transgender women. A transgender woman might decide to not undergo gender reassignment surgery 
they might wish to not have testosterone blockers, um, and in that case, their testosterone levels would likely be above those of cisgender female athletes, um, which would then bar them from competing. Um, in addition, hormone treatment and surgery are not requirements of being transgender, um, so that in and of itself makes these policies discriminatory. The history of transgender athletes in competitive sports shows us that policy is often unguided and under-researched. It is not clear why such great emphasis is placed on testosterone levels when there does not seem to be much research into whether or not it is testosterone that gives transgender athletes an advantage. The experience of athletes such as Renee Richards and Duty Chand demonstrate the way gendered categories for sports competition limit those who can compete. While testosterone is the thing being measured as hormone levels are associated with sex, it is gender that is holding us back from allowing all athletes to the chance to compete. The unfairness of IOC policies and the discrimination professional transgender athletes face illuminate the irrelevancy of gender as what divides sport. If we truly want to achieve this idea of fair play and to uphold the skills thesis, then we need to divide competitive sport categories by sport-specific factors such as height, weight, wingspan, flexibility, endurance level, etc. More research needs to be put into how we divide competitive sports, and at the end of the day, athletic competition is not inherently gendered. That is simply how we have chosen to participate. Yes, different genders compete as athletes, but this history of transgender athletes and the policies of their participation in competitive sports indicates that gender is by no means the correct method of categorization.